1: This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 125. That sounds like a big deal. It is. Uh, we are recording on Thursday, September 24th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Amanda Nelson while Jeff gets settled in his new home on the West Coast. And we are coming to you from BookRiot.com. He left us. He did. There's just too much Southern girl on this coast. <laughs> so he had to flee to an entirely different coast. <laughs> he fled New York. He went somewhere with equally good coffee and donuts. Mm-hmm. There's a real pattern to Jeff's real estate choices.
0: Whatever. East Coast, West Coast. <laughs> it's East Coast, cool. best Coast, Jeff.
1: Yeah. It doesn't have to rhyme to be true. Uh, we're just going to hold down our mid-Atlantic state here together. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need you. Sob, sob, sob. <laughs> And I think we've both met our weekly quota of cheese grits because we had a delicious brunch earlier this
0: week. It was so good, (laughs) y'all.
1: Yeah, so now we're ready to rock. It's been a big... News week, like, or lots of stories. I don't know that there's been any like one big thing, but we have tons of things to get to. Before we start, want to remind y'all that we have Book Riot Live coming in like six weeks. It's six coming weeks. up really soon now. Ah, party, party, party. Woo, 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 woo. Uh, so, November <sighs> 7th and 8th in New York. Book Riot Live is our two-day book nerd palooza. We have panels. We have all kinds of fun games. There's going to be a bookish Jeopardy where you'll get to watch three authors compete against each other in literary Jeopardy. We're going to have parties at the Strand in the... In the cocktails room. No, it's in the (laughs) rare books room, but there will be cocktails. Um, All kinds of stuff. And because you know that we are all about celebrating the big, beautiful, diverse world of books and reading, you can expect that from the programming at Book Riot Live. Go to BookRiotLive.com to check out the lineup, but you'll be able to see that there's not just a straight genre panel. There's not like the sci-fi panel and the romance panel. We're mixing up authors from all genres who write about all kinds of things from all kinds of perspectives and looking for the themes that unite those kinds of stories. You'll get a better idea when you see it. But there is a panel about like writing relationships and people who write in all kinds of genres will be talking about that. So different kinds of programming than what you might see. We've also got a farm to table panel where a bunch of people from inside publishing who are responsible for making books will tell you all about that process. We're going to do live recordings of these shows. Uh, all of the Book Riot podcasts will have live recordings. There will also be a live performance of William Shakespeare's Star Wars, uh, which is going to be excellent. Uh, I was supposed to be an Ewok, but that actually conflicts with a different thing that I have to speak on that day. So um, I nominate Amanda to be an Ewok in my place. No.
0: <laughs> oh, Surprise.
1: No. Oh, okay. You don't have to be an Ewok. I just thought it would be funny. Well, I have the, like, the hair. You do. I could be a. I could be a small fuzzy animal. And your costume would basically just be like a cape or a bathrobe. It would be super comfortable. Okay. All right. All right. Are you in? All right. I'm fine with that. Okay. Good. <laughs> I knew that would sell you. We'll just make you a Star Wars themed snuggie to wear all week. I will never take it off. <laughs> So if you want to come hang with us and a whole bunch of other book nerds, come to Book Riot Live November 7th and 8th in New York. Go to BookRiotLive.com to get your tickets and use the code WHEELHOUSE, all one word, W-H-E-E-L-H-O-U-S-E, to save 20 bucks on your registration. Let us know. Hit us up on Twitter when you register so that we can celebrate and throw some Muppet arms at you. We're excited to meet you guys. Okay, so now that that's done, we got to do our first sponsor, and then we're going to get into the news. Thank you for hanging with me. Mm-hmm. Scribd is back again this week. They are the subscription book service that gives you access to more than a million, more than a million books Comics and audiobooks. You go to Scribd.com/slash-bookriot to get started with a free month. If you like it, after that, it's just $8.99 a month for all you can read. Major houses like HarperCollins, Simon and Schuster, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, small presses that are doing interesting work like McSweeney's, Counterpoint, and Tin House, and so many in between. The subscription gives you unlimited access to their huge, like, really, legitimately huge ebook catalog. You also get to choose from their 40,000 audiobooks and listen to one audiobook per month. If you like more audiobooks than that, you can buy additional credits to listen to more. They have tons to choose from. Scribd also, and this is, I guess, the most important part. It's the thing that I really like about Scribd, makes it really easy to find more books you're going to love. It's a great discovery tool. We're all already up to our eyes in book recommendations, but Mm Scribd is just such a pleasure to scroll through and there's a real delight in like, oh, I want to read that book and I want (laughs) to read that book and I also want to read that book that I didn't even know was a book until just now and you can just build a humongous list and then look at it and think about how fun it's going to be when you read all of those books. So they have hundreds of curated collections that, that are made by their team of editors and They will tailor their recommendations for you based on other books you've loved or not by the magic of algorithms. Mm -hmm. So you can rate books, stuff you give one star. They won't recommend other things like that to you. Things you give five stars, they'll throw you a whole bunch of similar recommendations. Go to Scribd.com slash bookriot right now. That's scrib dcom bookriot. Get your free month to get started. Get 30 days of unlimited reading and one audiobook. And that landing page at Scribd.com slash bookriot also features 15 of our favorite at Book Riot books that are available in the service. So huge variety there. A lot of them are titles that you've heard me and Jeff talk about on this show. Um, books and authors that we love that you can try. And there's no risk. If you don't like them, then you just close it and you pick up another ebook and you haven't spent any additional dollars because your first month is free. And after that, it's unlimited reading for the one flat fee. This is a win-win-win all the way around situation for readers, I think. So go to Scribd.com slash Book Riot. Get started today. If you need more recommendations, you can always ask us. We are around on the interweb for your book recommending pleasure. And thanks to Scribd for sponsoring this week. Okay, we're going to start in we're going to take a little stroll down <laughs> Statistics Street. <laughs> it's, not, it's not quite Methodology Corner. I'm going to want to put some of these in Methodology Corner. though. Yeah, I, okay. this you, yeah. Uh, you had a lead on this story because I saw you uh, featured it in Critical Linking and you've been tweeting about it this week. So why don't you tell us about how our journey down Statistics Street begins? All
0: right, we're going to start with this article that was in the New York Times. And the title is the plot twist, love a good pun. Ebooks, <laughs> ebook sales slip, and print is far from dead, which is reassuring, I suppose, if you were worried about print dying. Uh, and so the thing behind this is, as new studies and new um, numbers from publishers have come out about the rate at which people are purchasing ebooks, and the numbers are going down, surprisingly, and well, so I guess surprisingly depends on who you are, um, instead of up. And I can't. Fine. Oh, here we go. Ebook sales. Ebook sales fell by ten percent in the first five months of this year, which is kind mm. of a big, a big jump. Um, uh, according to the Association of American Publishers, which collects data from almost twelve hundred publishers, digital books accounted last year for about twenty percent of the market, which is about the same as they did a few years before that. So, ebook sales kind of topped off, remained steady, and then now have started to fall. Which is interesting when you set it up against the the resurgence of independent bookstores, um, mm-hmm. and of course Oyster shutting down. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. But a thing that I really want to mention about this is this study or these numbers do not include any self
1: published eBooks. Confounding factor like whoa, like hello whoa, <laughs> <laughs> if I may. Is hello whoa the new single from Macklemore? <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's what he sings when he's in the thrift shop now.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, that's there's no way that this is that these numbers are true. Then, right? Like, self publishing is undeniably a part of publishing, and so many of the best selling eBooks are self published books. If you take a look at Amazon, th- that's undeniable. This is, I think. A kind of a shady case of making numbers say what you want them to say. Yeah. Like we'll just ignore this data about self-published eBooks, and if we pretend that self-published books don't exist, then we can say that eBook sales are falling, and that print is fine, and then everyone can rejoice because print is more valuable.
0: You're just lying. Like you're you're <laughs> just telling a lie via the New York Times, right? Okay. When we we were talking about this on Slack. Uh, which is our internal social network. So I dropped this link in and the contributors were talking about it. And uh, one of our contributors, Jessica Tripler, who writes about romance for us, was saying that right now the USA Today bestseller romance list is half self-published. Like half of the books on the romance bestseller list are from self-published authors. And so to like just ignore the existence of self-publishing when you're talking about digital reading makes no sense. No sense at all, unless you have some other agenda. Yeah, and it doesn't, the thing about this, that I apparently have very strong feelings about this. Which <laughs> I can I do hear not this. You are,
1: you're, I can, you're, you're getting worked up. <laughs> My
0: octaves keep rising. The <laughs> thing about this that irritates me, I'm calming down, is that they don't have, like ebooks and print books can coexist. And part of the, the article just talk about uh, like hybrid readers mm-hmm. are becoming the thing where people read in print. They also read um, e-books and they do audio and all of that. And I think that. Because that's true, because people are hybridizing. Is that a word? I don't know. They're reading. Yeah, it doesn't have to be. It's not a zero sum game. Like, we don't have to pretend that ebook sales are slipping so that we can celebrate that print isn't dead. Ebook sales can go up and print can also be alive. Like, those, they're not mutually exclusive because readers aren't like purists. We're not, you know, most of the readers that I know anyway aren't all just reading in one particular format and also these numbers don't include digital audiobooks at all which is another thing that I'm like
1: um right yeah that's a huge (sighs) that's a huge confounding factor Jeff mentioned on Twitter like this could also be connected to the fact that we don't have a Fifty Shades of Grey or an Insurgent or a Hunger Games or like a big genre hit that's happening this year that would have been a book that is you know widely bought in digital Um, and we know that genre fiction tends to dominate digital over literary fiction, there are all kinds of, you know, interesting speculations and (laughs) and reasons for for why that might be. But this just this piece in the New York Times and these numbers just aren't the whole story. And more than that, the thing that really annoys me is the insistence in publishing on equating the health of print with the health of literature, or like capital B books, like, as long as print is okay, the world of books, is okay. And if print is slipping, then the world of books must be screwed. Um, And since you were talking about, you know, it's not a zero-sum game. Also, we've got more people buying and reading books than ever before in more formats. There are more books out in the world. And I am not interested in debating with you whether more books equals more good books Mm. or not. Um, But there are more books out in the world. There's more to choose from. There's never been a more exciting time to be a reader in terms of all of the options that are available to us, both in what we want to read and how we want to read it. And ebooks have also opened up accessibility to books and reading to people who have visual impairments, who can't read print books because the text is too small. We hear from readers who have this experience all the time who say, you know, it's not just about like loving the smell of books or the way that a hardcover feels in your hands. But when we allow the publishing conversation to preference to preference, Mm -hmm. I'm just so worked up, I can't even talk Um, when, when we allow the conversation to really give primary focus to print readers or to act like print readers are better or more noble, or that print books are better or more noble or the, the one true kind of reading. We ignore the fact that a lot of readers can't use print books. Mm-hmm. Um, readers who have disabilities that prevent them from holding books, from you know dealing with the physical act of holding a book can read ebooks. Readers with visual impairments can bump up the font on an ebook in a way that is not physically possible. With a print book. And we hear from them and they say, like, I hate this conversation because it ignores very real disabilities and it ignores very then real benefits of digital reading to people who have been closed out of being able to read or who have had really significant challenges when print was the only Option. This, I, I just want to get away from this. Every time that there's a piece about ebook versus print numbers and the print numbers are stronger than the ebooks, there's all this like rejoicing and publishing that everything's going to be okay. And for a lot of reasons, I also think everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. The, the sky's not falling. We say that on this show <laughs> all the time. Yeah. The numbers are going up, things are looking good. But we've got to get away from as long as print is okay, everything's fine. That's just not the that's not the equation. And it's not the whole story. Um, And there are so many readers who are experiencing great things in their reading lives because of digital books and accessibility. And we should, you know, acknowledge that reality.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's also a lot of privilege, I think that comes along, like economic privilege that comes along with being able to uh, be a champion for the nobility of the print book. You know, if you can pay $27 for a hardcover, awesome.
1: If you can live in a neighborhood that has an indie bookstore within walking distance.
0: Yeah, do it. I mean, like, do mm-hmm. it. I would do it. If I, you know, I buy some books in hardcover because I can But that doesn't mean that, like, I'm doing a noble or um, a, a morally superior, I'm right. making a morally superior choice to somebody who, you know, can only pay 99 cents for their books. Um, so, and then, you know, when I say that people, why don't they go to the library? Well, why don't you step Mm -hmm. up off somebody's choices? Like, why is it so important (laughs) to you? That, uh, but how people buy like, yeah. a format that someone else you've never met reads in—I don't people, it boggles my mind why
1: people yeah, care. Yeah, that's that—that that is maddening. Um, <laughs> earlier this summer, I was in Toronto for a couple of days for sales meetings, and um, our sales director Jan and I went to the Wattpad offices and got to talk to them and learn more about what they're doing at Wattpad. And if you don't know, Wattpad is a social writing and reading site where uh, people publish the work that they are creating, and readers can read it for free. Um, and They were telling us of their millions and millions of members, um, the vast majority of them live in developing nations where ebook accessibility has exceeded print book Mm -hmm. accessibility. And Wattpad is, for many of them, their only access to books because it's digital, which they like they have a phone and they have an Internet connection and Everything on there is free. All the content is free. Um, and these are people who live in situations that don't have a lot of privilege, that don't have an indie bookstore around the corner, that can't order the print book on Amazon and have it delivered for both economic and geographical mm-hmm. reasons but they can read stories that people are publishing that they want to put out and share in the world on Wattpad. That's really incredible. These are people who wouldn't have been able to read books 20 years ago. There just would not have been stories available to them because of where they live. And the internet has given them that. Um, it's I think that's really magical. Wattpad was one of the things that, um, that you mentioned as well when you were talking about where is self-publishing mm-hmm. in this pile of statistics. Uh, but we just you know have to try to get out of our own Bubbles, I think, and and get beyond the idea that there's one kind of book that is more book. Like this uh, print books are more real books than ebooks are. Like and I know we've outlawed our contributors at Book Riot yeah. from referring to print books as real books.
0: Yeah, and they're not allowed to submit posts about why physical books are superior to ebooks. Like I just I send that to new people. I reject your premise. Letters. Yeah, no, like I'm not publishing that. You can't no, just no. And for, to their credit that never happens like I yeah, never no try to submit, but just in case <laughs>
1: <laughs> if you were thinking about applying to book riot don't send us an essay about why you love the smell of print books oh my
0: gosh no please do. no don't just don't okay do
1: it. Uh, okay let's move on All we're right. going to take a couple more steps down statistics street I'm just picturing us like wearing Victorian outfits strolling arm <laughs> in arm so it's totally a thing that both of us would do
0: yeah so I would totally rock a corset
1: well actually yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Publishers Weekly I'm jumping around a little bit from our agenda okay. but Publishers Weekly this month had a look at 20 years of Amazon because they opened the doors to their vo- virtual bookstore in 1995 and And now we get to see the best-selling titles of Amazon for their first 20 years. Have you looked at this? I have. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to play the little um, blind guessing game where usually I'm the one who doesn't have any of the answers. (laughs) No, Um, I've
0: already looked at it. Although the one that, I mean, I would have guessed Fifty Shades of Grey to be number one, mm -hmm. and it is. But I think that's a pretty easy (laughs) Yeah. You know, like easy guess.
1: <laughs> 2, 3 and 4 were surprises to me. I thought that they would be big, but I didn't think that they would be this big. It's The Hunger Games, Catching Fire and Mockingjay. Yeah. In that order.
0: I would have guessed The Fault in Our Stars for number 2 probably, but that's yeah. number 10. Uh-huh. Um there aren't really any Gone okay. Girl's
1: number 7. Gone Girl. Hold
0: on, I'm looking through this and it looks like about half of the top 20 best-selling books in Amazon's history are series trilogies. Mm-hmm. So the El James's Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy is one, five, and six. The Hunger Games is two, three, and four. Um, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo thirteen, fourteen, and eighteen. Eighteen. Um, so yeah, that's about half. So Gone Girl is the first standalone book on the list, and it's number seven. And then mm-hmm. The Help and Unbroken.
1: Really interestingly, there's only one uh, Harry Potter title on here. Oh yeah. The last one, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, is number sixteen.
0: And then Heaven is for real. Oy oy.
1: <laughs> and Strengths Finder 2.0. I've never which even heard of that. It's a business book. Oh. It's like I think that that's one of those bestsellers that's a bestseller because all the giant corporations bought thousands of copies and made everyone in their company read it. Like I am positive that there are people listening to this show whose bosses have made them read the Strengths Finder and like take the quizzes and then sit around in a circle and share their results. Ugh. I may or may not have had that experience in a previous <laughs> life as well.
0: So, all of these 20 books, except for I'm assuming Strengthfinder, but I don't know, are movies also. Right, right. Including Heaven is for Real, right? Like that was made yeah. into a movie
1: recently. So, yeah, we've got Fifty Shades of Grey, The Hunger Games trilogy, the other Fifty Shades of Grey. Gone Girl is number seven, The Help is number eight, Unbroken by Lauren Hillenbrand is number nine. Is Un, let's see. We've yeah, got-
0: Unbroken's a movie.
1: Unbroke, it is a movie. Is that and Strengths Finder? are those the only two, I guess, non-fictions? And then we'll allow that Heaven is for Real <laughs> is marketed as non-fiction. Um, so three out of these 20 are non-fiction. This is dominated, this list, by fiction. There's a lot of young adults. There's nothing literary. Not a surprise. Well, the uh, Water for Elephants know. by Sarah Gruen, number 20.
0: Book clubs, man.
1: Huge book. And right above it, The Book Thief at number 19.
0: Everybody's White. Mm-hmm. Everybody's white. Wow. Everybody's white. So, okay.
1: Um, Publishing doesn't
0: have a diversity problem. Not at
1: all. Not at all. And if you um, watched the Emmys last week, this is a nice reminder of how many movies are based out of books. Like, we got every everything on this list has been made into a movie with the exception of Strengths Finder. You're right. There's and, probably, like, a terrible instructional DVD for it, though.
0: Oh, I'm sure. And all of the main characters in all of these books are also white. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Viola Davis made a point in her her I mean, acceptance speech that um, the only thing that separates people of color in movies, and I feel like this is the same in publishing, the only thing that separates people of color from, you know, white authors or white actors is opportunity. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there were no opportunities for people of color to act in any of these movies, except right. for Rue in the Hunger Games movies, and people flipped their biscuit when they Rue really
1: did. I was remember a that. when yes. it when it turned out that Rue was black. She just, it says it in the book. Y'all yeah, need to learn how to read. <laughs> Davis in her speech. Then she go she goes on, and it's really worth watching, even if you're not an Emmys viewer, to watch her acceptance speech to say you can't play roles that don't exist, mm-hmm. and there are very few roles for uh, actresses and actors of color, and with as much as many books and mo- with as many books are, man, I am so tongue-tied. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, <laughs> With as many movies that are based on books?
1: Yes, and television shows that are based on books. You can see the pieces of the funnel mm-hmm. here that we can sort of start to connect those dots, that we're not publishing very many books that are by people of color. Very few books that have um, main characters of color become big deals, become bestsellers. Amazon's all-time top 20 don't have any books uh, that have a main character who is a person of color. When those things become movies, there are then no roles for people of color. And then we just continue to have media that are dominated by white people.
0: I suppose you could say The Help, but really that's a book about a white girl.
1: Yeah, there were some great roles and some great performances by women of color in The Help, but that's a story about a white girl. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Viola Davis was in that movie.
1: hmm Anyway. Anyway, it's interesting to look at Amazon. If you're interested at all in the lifetime of Amazon, this Publishers Weekly piece that we have in the show notes will be interesting to you. They have a little highlight from each year, sort of a timeline or from several years of uh, major developments of Amazon. And if you want a really deep dive into Amazon, then I would recommend the book The Everything Store. Um It's long and bonkers about Jeff Bezos and his ideas and where Amazon has come from and how it's grown and all sorts of stories about what it's like to work for Amazon and what what they might be gunning for in the big picture. Um, Really fascinating. I listened to it on audio um, and you get to like, I can't remember what it was now, but you get to hear like what his original idea for the name of the company was and think about how bad that would have been. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff Bezos has bad ideas? Yeah, everybody has some bad ideas (laughs) sometimes. Uh, All right, that concludes... Oh, no, it doesn't. We have more more. on Statistics Street. Last stop. Tell me something good? Maybe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So the Nielsen Summit has released a new study about young adult uh, books, the statistics behind young adult books. And the takeaway here is that 80% of YA is purchased by adults. And in this article in The Guardian... (laughs) Why do journalists ignore whatever? Anyway, in the art this article in The Guardian, in turn, it presents that statistic that 80% of YA is purchased by adults and then goes down a defense of adults reading YA, which is unnecessary. It's 2015. So um, read whatever you want. The thing about that that confuses me is adults buy their kids books. Right. Like 80% of YA being bought by adults does not mean that 80% of YA readers are adults. It means that sixteen-year-olds don't have credit cards. Yes, that's all. So, Mm -hmm. like, let's not confuse the two. Because I saw a bunch of, you know, on Twitter was just like, "Oh my gosh!" you know, like, does that mean that teenagers aren't actually reading? And (sighs) guys, no, no, no. (laughs) It means that teenagers so much unnecessary
1: hand wringing right?
0: Like, no, it means that parents buy their kids things, right, clothes and food and books and stuff. Because that's what you do when you have children.
1: <laughs> Clothes and food and books and stuff. That's my, that's my shopping time. It's like. just all the time. <laughs> that's how you parent. Clothes and food and books and stuff. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's, the, you can kind of see like the origins of this story are somebody's looking at statistics who also thinks like, well, we should make sure that everyone knows it's okay for adults to read young adult fiction. I so know. we'll just take this number, pretend that we don't know that some of this 80% of ya books that are bought by adults are going to younger people who like you said don't have credit cards <laughs> and then we'll set up a it's its essentially like a straw man situation because it assumes that the other side of the argument that adults shouldn't be reading young adult fiction or that we need some defense of adults reading young adult fiction is a valid real thing
0: yeah there's some and, more interesting stuff in this i clicked through to read the rest of the study mm-hmm. um And there's uh, some interesting points about multicultural consumers. The children's market in general is up 12% from from last year, which is, I think, a big jump for for kids' books. And that includes YA. Um, Mm -hmm. And we don't have a big like Hunger Games Divergent thing happening right now. So for that to still show such big growth is interesting. And they make a point in this study about um, how publishers are focusing more on diverse books because of population changes in the mm. U.S., which is like
1: what we've been saying for whatever. A
0: long right, time. that it makes
1: business sense to pay attention.
0: Right. <laughs> and so the most telling statistic that that publishers are paying attention to right now is that today's children under the age of nine in the U.S. are split 50-50 between white and children of color. And that is soon, um, I read an article somewhere that by like 2030, um, most kindergartens, Classes will be... Whites will be in the minority. Um, So publishers are focusing more on putting out diverse titles because the demographics of readers are changing. And these are the readers who are going to grow up to buy books later in life. So if you're not, you're going to lose them early if you're not, you know, Mm -hmm. um, paying attention
1: to that. Right. I would love it for publishers to just be like, yes, representation matters. But if they're not going to, which I don't think they will, because publishing is slow and publishing does not want to be political. um, And by making that choice, you're, of course, inherently political because everything is. Uh, but it, it is if we can at least get some more diverse books and some better representation in the books that we are given to read about who is actually here in this world that we live in and who, what America actually looks like, who the people are that are here and what the experiences are that they have, that's good. Uh, that will be good for business. Mm-hmm. And if you can't get your head around representation mattering, then hopefully you can at least get your head around you know, make books that better represent the people who are here. And those people will be more likely to buy your books and keep you in business. Um, That sort of leads to the next thing. Um, and it's a, a really terrific essay on BuzzFeed by Mira Jacobs, who went to a publishing industry event. Publishers Weekly asked her to give a keynote speech at an event that um, honored the industry's young publishing stars. So she jumped at the ta- the chance, and she wanted to talk about what it was like getting published. Uh, she is a woman of color, um, and she wanted to talk about the statistics that face writers of color in publishing, what, what it's like when you are at a significant disadvantage in an industry and the people at the event literally ignored her as she spoke. Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, She... It, was just, it sounds like this was just a poorly run event, perhaps. The sound system was terrible, which is a real problem anytime you're trying to give a talk. She stood up on a chair and had to yell to deliver her speech. And half the room, she says, turned away and started talking over me. By the time I was done, I was talking to a very small ring of people, which felt awful. Mm. More awful were the disappointed faces of the minorities in the crowd. The few who hugged me as I walked out and whispered, we wish they had heard it. Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I cannot imagine what I would have done in her position. I might
1: have rioted. <laughs> <laughs> I it's. I guess I wish I were more surprised. I'm so disappointed that this was the response, but also I can picture that room. Yeah. We just have to do better publishing. We have to do better. Um,
0: uh, I like she, don't even, you know, I'm just...
1: Yeah, there's. Tired. It this is, tired. it's a really terrific and important essay. So we'll put the link in the show notes and you can read it on your own. And I think also if you've been a listener and a Book Riot reader who has been kind of like, why won't you guys shut up about diversity and representation? I'm tired of hearing about it. If, if you haven't quite... If it hasn't clicked for you or if you've been wondering why this is a thing that we talk about so much, this is a great essay to read. And put yourself into a person's real experience, what it what it is like from her voice to be a person of color um, in the world of publishing and then to literally have... White people in publishing turn their backs on you as you try to talk about your experience, um, and she's talking about how you know it, it will be at publishing's peril if they continue to ignore the people of color who represent the world that we do live in and who have stories to tell and who want to have books published and who are at significant disadvantages because they are not white in this industry. It's this is maddening, um, but it's a really wonderful piece. I'm really glad that Mira Jacob wrote about it. I'm very sorry that she had the reason to.
0: Can I call an audible for a second? I have like a last minute addition to this agenda yeah. that's relevant to what we're talking about right now. Yes, do it. Do oh, it. Awesome. Okay. I just I just saw it. So the um, Lee and Lowe Books is a, a diverse uh, publisher of children's books. And they had this survey going around where they wanted to um, get div- diversity statistics on employees in publishing houses because really a lot of people think and I agree that that's where the diversity issue begins. Is that,
1: oh yeah, yeah. Jeff and I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Okay, yeah. So
0: publishing is mostly white, and uh, that creates its own little you know bubble, and so we get white stories because people like stories about themselves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, uh, so that's where I happened. So Lee and Low is doing this survey to to get actual numbers about diversity in publishing, and they got about like thirty um, publishers signed up but none of the big five the big uh, publishing houses but i just saw that penguin random house has agreed to do it yes which is crazy that's awesome yeah it's on i, I just dropped a link to the agenda so we can put it in the show notes but they had a change.org position going or, or petition um circulating asking people to sign to encourage the big five to participate and none of but them they did yeah and penguin random house is taking the survey there's an update from jason lowe from Lee and Lowe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this is the home of books like The Cat in the Hat and The Outsiders. And it's and the like
1: first 50% of every
0: book of published every book. this year. That's yeah, great. It's the first and maybe only time I've seen a big house make a statement like that. Like, make it, you know, they'll oh, do, like, I talked to employees at Penguin Random House who are lovely and who are, who care about diversity and all that. And, but, this is the first time I've seen the company actually do something right. about diversity. Oh,
1: I hope this is the first domino falling, and that the rest of them will sign up too. Yeah, me too. So we should have statistics someday
0: soon, I guess, about uh, diversity in at least paying one Random House and some other small independent publishers. So that should,
1: so you know, shed some That's light on the problem. Enormous, Hello. and it means perhaps that there's some sort of recognition that they can't continue to ignore the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Really great. Good job, Penguin Random House. Yay,
0: Penguin Random
1: House. Good your little job. penguin
0: look to we'll Cat
1: you on the head. <laughs> <laughs> I still wish it were random Penguin House, I but know. whatever. <laughs> Come on. Um, you want to tell us
0: about our next sponsor? Sure. Our next sponsor is a title Entry Island by Peter May. This is a murder mystery, which it's starting to get cold here a little bit. I woke up this morning and had to put on a sweater. And mm-hmm. this is a great time to start reading uh, mysteries, cozy or otherwise, uh, if you'd like them a little grittier. This one's a little grittier. Whatever. So this uh, book, Entry Island, it takes place uh, on entry island, uh, there's a murder that rocks this kind of isolated community, and a Montreal homicide detective and insomniac, she McKenzie, heads out to this chain of Madeline Madeline Islands, which is in the the Gulf of St. Lawrence, to solve this murder. It's only two kilometers wide, three kilometers long, there's only a hundred people who live on this island, and the wealthiest person who lives there has been discovered murdered in his home. So covered in her husband's blood, the dead man's wife, who's like this very melancholy figure, spins this tale to the cops about a masked intruder who had a <laughs> knife and all this stuff. Um, so the investigation starts off to be like a little more than a you know a formality. But Shima is kind of electrified by this widow when he's interviewing her for some reason. He's convinced that he's met her before, even though this is like totally impossible. He's not from there, he doesn't he doesn't know who she is. But he's he's like haunted by this feeling that he knows her, and his insomnia starts to be punctuated by these like hallucinations, these hallucinatory dreams of a distant past on a Scottish island, three thousand miles away, and in his dreams he and the Widow have this leading role. So I don't know, are they like, he's inserting himself in the Outlander or something? I, I was just about to make
1: an Outlander joke. I'm glad we're on the same wave. Oh, I wave totally, today. I'm there.
0: I'm there for the Outlander jokes. Um, so his fantasy about past lives and linked fates becomes an obsession. And despite all of this evidence that starts to mount up that this woman killed her husband, he finds himself completely convinced that she's innocent. So obviously there's this conflict between his weird personal feelings and these, like, this looming feeling about personal destiny that he has and his mm. professional duty and his uh, duty to his team, his the team of other police officers, his career solving this case and all of that. So this book is... Um, Peter May is an award-winning author of the Lewis trilogy. This novel is standalone. And it's actually... Um, kind of a historical, it's got a historical element. The events of Entry Island relate to um, the tragic history of the Highland Clearances, which was forced displacement by the British government of families in um, the Highlands of Scotland in the 18th and 19th century. Um, so there's a, there's a historical element to this murder mystery, a little, little weirdness with his hallucinations, stuff with the past. Yeah, so check it out. It's getting chilly. Read a mystery.
1: That's Entry Island by Peter May. Thank you for sponsoring the show. Awesome. Okay, you hinted at this next story earlier. We are going to pour one out now. I will pour
0: a six pack.
1: I'm pouring so many out. (laughs) but it's not a totally sad story, we'll get there. Yeah. Uh Oyster, the ebook subscription service, which was the first one out. Um they launched just about 2 years ago. Um I remember Jeff and I were both so excited. I think like we got our accounts on the first day. We're like, "Yes, someone is finally doing <laughs> ebook subscriptions and it's beautiful and they're smart people." And uh I've met a bunch of them now and they are really great, wonderful, smart people. But they announced earlier this week that Oyster is closing the ebook subscription Part of the business. Um, So that came out, I think that news came out on Tuesday. Um, from their blog. They announced it in Publishers Weekly wrote a piece about it and we all tweeted sad faces because the Oyster folks are wonderful, the tool is really beautiful, the there's a great library of ebooks, and it was cool to see Oyster come out and then Scribd came out and we're like, ah, people are figuring stuff out about ebook subscriptions. Mm -hmm. Um publishers were a little slower to to jump on board and understandably like this is a new thing and uh it's a risk for publishers. They don't know how uh to make This participating in this kind of thing sustainable yet. There are a lot of pieces that go into whether a a startup that's a new idea like this will succeed or not. Um, Oyster had a bunch of venture capital money. I don't know the specifics of, you know, how how much they were supposed to grow with that um, or how fast, but um, we were very sad to learn that the ebook subscription portion of the business would be closing, but then the next day... It was like the sun came out yeah. a little bit because it turned out that Google has bought, uh, has bought Oyster or like part of it. It's unclear. But Google, yeah, uh, it's a. I hate the word hire, but Google acquired oyster essentially for the technology and the team of people who understand that technology and the editorial Mm. team. Um, Laura Hazard Owen, who's a great longtime publishing reporter, wrote a piece at Neiman Lab that we'll link to in the show notes as well, where she starts to connect the dots that Google knows that way more people are reading books on their phones um, and dedicated e-reader usage is failing. Google, of course, has the Google Play Store, which is on Android phones. More people have Android phones than have iPhones. But there haven't been any really great, solid um, reading experiences specifically for Google users. Um, and Oyster's technology was really good. The user interface was really beautiful. Uh, their uh, metadata must have been good. Their discovery tools were great. And the online content run by our friend Kevin Wynn um, was really excellent mm-hmm. as well. So um, Google did not get Oyster's contracts with publishers, which uh, Laura Hazard Owen then takes to mean Google isn't looking to build its own ebook subscription service, but they want to bring Oyster's mobile reading experience plus their editorial sensibility um, and good and really excellent content to Google Play. Um, so Google is looking to to do something now with this majority of. Smartphone users who have Android phones and who have the Google Play Store. I hope um, they do something. I don't
0: want, because now it's just Scribd in Amazon.
1: Yeah. Well, and remember, like, I think you were blogging back then, but this might have been before the time that you tried ebooks. Like, years ago, before indie bookstores were partnering with Kobo, um, there was a, the Google uh, ebook store. Mm-hmm. And you could buy your, like, you could click on a link. It was a really convoluted process, but you could click on a link from your indie bookstore to buy an ebook. Through your indie bookstore that came from the Google bookstore, and then it would support your indie. But if you wanted to read ebooks, like at the time, I had a Sony e reader. That's how long ago that oh, was. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you could only do this on non Amazon devices. Um, and that did not, it didn't last very long. It was a really clunky process. Um, it, I don't think, benefited the indie bookstores very much. Very few people did it because it was such a clunky process. And the whole experience, uh, the just the whole Google Books interface online was not excellent. Um, and then eventually indie bookstores left that and they moved to this partner uh, partnership with Kobo. And Google Books as an as a thing, like people use Google Books online for research and for digging into, you know, all of the public domain stuff that's available there for free. But I don't know anybody who's bought an ebook through the Google Play Store recently, ever. I maybe I don't, I don't think any of our contributors have ever said that that's where. And this is anecdotal, but um, we've got a hundred contributors, and most of them read ebooks at least some of the time because hybridization. Mm. And I don't think anybody says they buy their books there. I'm trying to remember, I just did data like two months ago for um, Book Riot reader poll that we conducted about where you got the most recent books that you've read. And maybe a couple people said the Google Play Store, but out of like several thousand responses. So this looks to me like Google trying to make a play for getting people to buy their books in the Google Play Store, but also just to think of Google Play as a source for books and bookish content.
0: Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that, Google. I don't, you've got, <laughs> yeah, they've we, acquired a great team, so if mm-hmm. anyone can do it, it's people from Oyster. But it just makes me feel very squicky that that Amazon and Scribd, like I feel pain for Scribd. Like you're the last man standing against Amazon. That's got to be like a terrifying.
1: Yeah, and Amazon user. has their um, Kindle yeah, Unlimited Yeah, the Unlimited, which is the same sort of thing. Program. Except Kindle right. Unlimited
0: is mostly self-published stuff mm-hmm. last I heard anyway because yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. publishers don't want to do business with Amazon but um good luck script
1: yeah I think Love my you. fear here is that we're gonna hear publishing interpret this as like either readers don't want a subscription service which I don't think is true it looks like readers have jumped on board we and we, it's worth pointing out we've never seen in the last two years since Oyster launched and then in the last year and year plus since Scribd uh, did their big publicity push, we've never seen user numbers from either of mm-hmm. those subscription services about how many paying subscribers they had. So we don't know how many readers were into this, but we do know that both Oyster and Scribd made changes to their models Um in response to readers who were reading a lot of books, like, you know, a, a subscription service makes the most economic sense for a person who reads a lot of books, and then will be saving a lot of money using the subscription service, but like the romance readers, who read a ton of titles, were costing both of these services money. And so they both called their romance offerings, because they couldn't afford to pay uh, the licensing essentially that they had had from publishers for those romance titles, the, the users were costing them more. So m- maybe they haven't, f- I don't, we haven't figured out how to make an ebook subscription model work, but I hope that there's someone out there who will figure it out. Um, Oyster was certainly a, a, a great way to conduct the experiment. It is a really beautiful tool. I'm going to miss reading on Oyster. i um, happy to see those smart people uh, going to another big company with an opportunity to try something cool.
0: It has to be interesting to watch. I'm frantically reading through my reading list on Oyster before it closes. (laughs) Because I don't know when it's coming. So I'm just like reading as much as possible before (laughs) I lose my account.
1: (sighs) Let's move from our sad Oyster news to something I guess kind of weird, but not that weird, but interesting. Okay,
0: there's so much of that on this agenda. I don't know where you're going. I'm going to James Patterson. Okay, yay, James Jimmy Pat. That's what I'm calling. He's actually secretly an evangelical preacher, Jimmy Pat.
1: (laughs) Someday we're gonna write like a buddy comedy about Jimmy Pat and Dee Brizzle. Oh, I want it! I want it! I really need to believe that James Patterson and Dan Brown are like best friends who hang oh, out.
0: God, James Patterson seems cooler than Dan Brown. Like Dan Brown, I've heard is kind of boring in real life.
1: I've heard he's so nice, though. Well, I don't know,
0: James. A James couple Patterson of our contributors
1: rich. who have done a bookstore event hosting in their past lives have met Dan Brown, of which I am deeply jealous, <laughs> uh, and have said that he was really nice. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Let's get them both drunk sometime. <laughs> Done. So what's happening with Jimmy Pat, Amanda? He won
0: a thing. Uh, the National Book Foundation, which presents the National Book Awards, um, gives out a, an award every year called the Literarian Award for Outstanding Service to the American Literary Community. And in Terrible name so, for a good thing. Literarian? What does that mean? Anyway, uh, 2015's award is going to James Patterson. This is, um, I guess, not surprising. He's really heavily involved in... Mm-hmm doing things that he perceives as, you know, like saving American literary culture. He's He did those grants a while back for indie bookstores. This year he's giving like a million dollars, some crazy large amount of, of money to school libraries. Um, he's donated over 250,000 books to kids in the U.S. and 650,000 books to um, to soldiers, to U.S. soldiers. And mm-hmm. his, his website is full of all these kinds of like initiatives that he's doing, Um which I think is neat, you know. I don't yeah. I didn't really like have an opinion about James Patterson um until this year and I really started paying attention to all the stuff that he's doing. And it's great. I was a little weirded out by the, the grants to indie bookstores because they're not nonprofits and why wouldn't you just give that money to libraries? But then he just turned around and gave some to libraries because he's got <laughs> enough to do whatever he wants. He can do both yeah. if he feels I think like this it. Is,
1: <laughs> I'm with you. I think this is great. He's in a real putting his money where his mouth is. Yeah situation. And this is exactly what we want from people who become successful in their chosen fields, right? Like, you rise to the top, you acknowledge all of the people who participate in that system and that community, and then you put some money back into it to help it thrive. Like, James Patterson also benefits from the world of books and reading continuing to be healthy and thriving and from more people having access to books and reading. But I don't think he's doing it because of that. James Patterson doesn't need to sell more books. Um, It seems He genuinely cares about the health of the reading community and about people having access to books and reading material and education and encouraging kids to read. He's got that readkiddoread.com site that's all about kids reading lives, which I think is really great. Um,
0: After um, I read recently that after the events, the recent events in Baltimore, he went there um, because I guess in his mind had made a connection between you know the poverty and failing school systems kids aren't reading. Um, and it you know contributes to this this cycle of poverty and violence and all that. So he went to, to Baltimore and gave like thousands of kids' books to, the, to students in poverty-stricken neighborhoods of Baltimore and then had this like meeting with local teachers and librarians and booksellers and administrators in the education system to talk with them about how to get kids who were in that position books and how to get them to read for fun on their own when they're not in school mm-hmm. so he's like getting down in into the the gritty you know kind of dirty real problems that kids face when it comes to reading because you know if you're if you're in a horrible situation at home you're not going to read you don't have time you know if you've got to care for your siblings and you've got to do the cleaning and all this responsibility is on you as a kid you're not going to read and so i don't know he's doing what he can to address the, address that kind of stuff and i i mm-hmm. respect it good for you james patterson yeah
1: hats off james patterson (laughs) you go you go blank coco
0: (laughs) there it is it was inevitable (laughs) she doesn't even go
1: here (laughs) Uh, james patterson goes wherever he wants (laughs) here i have a hell of a segue are you ready i'm so ready when we get james patterson and dan brown drunk do you know how we're gonna do it good job tell me how (laughs) We're going to do it with Harlequin's new wine collection. Amazing. (laughs) This is the first embargoed press release I have ever received that I was actually excited about. And the, the news is no longer embargoed, especially by the time you're listening to this show. So we can talk about it. So, Harlequin, the romance publisher, has produced a line of wines. The coffee on uh, these
0: things are amazing. It is.
1: It's, this is so, it's perfect. <laughs> the, the wines are exclusively available on Amazon. We'll have the link in the show notes where you can get all of the info. But it says, Harlequin has been sweeping women off their feet for over half a century. And now they're creating blissful moments in a whole new way with vintages by Harlequin. In searching for the ideal partner, Harlequin found the perfect pairing in vintage wine estates. Uh, it's a small group of Vintner families that uh, is on California's North Coast. And they worked with Harlequin to assemble a collection of fine wineries and wine brands from around the region. Uh, so each vintages by Harlequin Wine adds passion and flavor to everyday life. Um And all of the labels are these sort of like vintage romance novel-looking covers and like women in, you know, romantic dresses with things like falling in love is easy. I do it every time I open a bottle.
0: (laughs) The name of the Cabernet Sauvignon is Pardon My Body.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was, I got uh, an email about this yesterday and one of them is like a voluptuous redheaded woman and it's like she I you know I can never say no to a full-bodied red and I was like okay whoever sent me this press release knows their audience oh my gosh <laughs> the the chardonnay is called substitute for love this is so great wait wait there's this one more excellent there's a big banner across this uh page on amazon for the wines that says every bottle is crafted for a happy ending <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> puns Oh my gosh, that's so good. <laughs> oh I didn't even check to see how much it is. Fifteen dollars. Oh. Fifteen dollars for a bottle of the Cabernet Sauvignon. That's not bad.
1: If you are having book club at your house this month and it's your turn to buy the food and the beverages, please buy some vintages by Harlequin wine and entertain your book club. I just think this is so fantastic. Instagram and that business. Yeah. I believe that there is some of this wine headed my way. I also got a mysterious email a couple weeks ago from a person at Harlequin who was like, hi, I'm just checking to make sure that you're comfortable getting wine in the mail. (laughs) I was like, what kind of a question is that? (laughs) Do you even know me? <laughs> of course i am uh so i will hopefully be able to report back or maybe you can come over and we'll drink our harlequin oh, wine yeah. and then we'll have like the book riot version of drunk history <laughs> my what suggestion
0: when this when, she, when rebecca first told me about this was that we should drink it and watch magic mike
1: because <laughs> <laughs> it seems very appropriate i mean that actually sounds like a plan for a perfect evening excellent we can watch the mm-hmm. both i haven't seen either i can remedy that for you um and right nothing better than the substitute for love chardonnay to keep us company (laughs) if there were were ever any doubt that this is not a highbrow podcast don't care we lost it with the mean girl quotes i think (laughs) this is just so great i think this is my favorite weird publishing experiment in a while. Like Harlequin now is owned by HarperCollins. Uh they m- make a bajillion dollars a year yep. because they know what they're doing and romance publishing is so successful. And somebody over there was like, You know what'll be fun? We're gonna make wines. Yep. And I bet people are gonna buy them. Um, I will let you know, or we will let you know, listeners. Amanda and I will, you know, we'll fall on this sword for you. We will try. I will sacrifice. The Harlequin Wines. I think it's just so great. If nothing else, you really need to look at the bottles and the design and the copy they've written. It's like this is just – this is excellent all the way around. Cute. I love it. Pour yourself a nice hot bubble bath now that the weather is turning cold. Grab yourself a romance novel. Get a bottle of wine. You're good to go. We've only got a few minutes left. So which of these – we have like potpourri left on the agenda. So what do you want to do? I want
0: to talk about the Japanese bookstore do it. I think that is so interesting. So there's a Japanese bookstore that is owned by a guy who has been in a bookseller for like 20 years, and he opened this store as an experiment. And they only sell one book a week. And the store is just a cash register and a chair with this stack of this title that this guy's picked on it. Huh. And that is it. That's all. And sometimes there's art hanging that relates to whatever title he's picked. And he hosts events Every evening, to have like I guess a book club, he, he'll bring in the author and have them talk. He'll, um, every night, there's a different whatever thing around this title. But if you go to this bookstore, you have no choices. You can get the one book that they're carrying at the time. Like cluttering, okay. decluttering to the max. <laughs> there <laughs> is no no clutter. Cash register book. No
1: paradox of choice.
0: No and it's like taking that the the concept of indie bookstores as curators to this crazy extreme. I don't know why I find that so fascinating. It's been open since May, so there's not a lot of like, you know, data about mm. how the store is doing, but he's survived for 2 months or 3 months. So Interesting. I would imagine that something like that would immediately close. But you know, you're you're it's a it's not a stunt. But I have. If this existed in the U.S., I would go just to see W.T.F. You
1: know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But would you go every week and buy whatever it was he had picked? No. Yeah.
0: No. And you have to like that's some lo- that's a next level trust in one guy.
1: Yeah. This can't possibly
0: so, last. I don't.
1: I mean, it's interesting. Japan has a huge population, and Tokyo especially. So, I guess it's possible that if there, if this guy has similar taste to a certain sliver of Tokyo's population and he can reach those people and stay open long enough for the right people to figure out that his taste is similar to theirs Mm -hmm. or that they trust him enough to try it, I guess it could work. Like, I think you and I have both had the the experience on. Twitter, especially of like, there are just certain readers of the site who realize that like, oh, you read that, like, Amanda reads all the same things that I do. Mm -hmm. And so if Amanda recommends a book, I'm going to pick it up immediately. Um, And then we have certain readers that now we know do have similar taste to us. So when they recommend something to us, we know that like, oh, yeah, you know, that reader is into the same things that I am. And I'll probably like the book as well. So I guess like that kind of relationship could pop up. But I don't know how you how you do that or how you stay open long enough to prove it.
0: It says that he came up with the idea in a industry workshop where people Hmm. were asked to develop a new idea for a bookstore and write it out on just one page. And this is what he came up with. One book a week. Well, your overhead would be very
1: low. Yeah. You know what you should do is sell – memberships to this thing Ooh. like you get a one-year membership that gets you at some kind of discount that gets you every book um but then you you sort of hope that like people don't pick up all their books so you make some extra profit from it yeah. all these subscri- subscription services in general rely on the dead <laughs> yeah well yeah like you're in so does your gym yeah you know, oh, they, totally. they hope you pay and never show up uh so interesting anyway that's if any of you guys are in tokyo or are going to tokyo soon please go check this out and let us know yeah tell us about it Um, okay (laughs) before we get to the new book segment we've got one last sponsor this week it's warby parker and i love them and so i am happy that they are here uh glasses traditionally have been super expensive i think my first pair of reading glasses that i got when i was 17 because i'm an old lady (laughs) um were like $500 (laughs) because of like frames and lenses. And I remember my mom being like, how did this happen? (laughs) Uh, That's, ridiculous. Your glasses should not cost as much as your fancy iPhone. Uh, so, And Warby Parker believes that. So they've created a new concept in eyewear. It's contemporary eyeglasses that are extremely affordable and they are fashion forward. So you also don't have to do the thing where you're saving money and you look like you're saving money. Um, you can look like a million bucks without spending it. Um, Warby Parker believes that glasses should be viewed as an accessory. They're like your bag, your shoes, your necktie, your watch, your hat, your bracelet at $95 that makes it easy to accessorize with glasses. On top of their great price, all the glasses include anti reflective and anti glare coating at no additional cost, which is really the kicker. Like, that is how your optometrist is getting $500 from you. And you know that. Like, it's upselling hell if you're standing in an optometrist's office. They're like, you need these glasses. And also, you probably need the anti reflective and anti glare because you sit in front of a computer all day. Um, oh, and by the way, that's going to cost you extra. And then you also need stuff to clean them with, and that's going to cost you extra. Not 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 so at Warby Parker. You get the anti-reflective and anti-glare coating at no additional cost and all glasses include a hard case and a cleaning cloth. You don't have to purchase any additional items to get everything that you need for your glasses and to take care of your glasses. Warby Parker makes buying high-quality prescription glasses online easy, risk-free, and enjoyable. And that's not just ad copy. I can tell you because I've done this. The glasses on my face. <laughs> um, at this very moment, our Warby Parker, if you watch our videos on YouTube, you have seen my Warby Parker glasses many times. If you like them, they are the Oliver style in whiskey tortoise color because, of course, Um Warby Parker has this awesome home try on program, which I did and was great. You can order five pairs of glasses to get shipped to you directly for free. They just send you them. They're, you know, glad they're like fake glasses with just clear glass in them. You try them on at home. You can take selfies and send them to your friends and say, what do you think about this? Um, I tweeted my the frames I got now are pretty different from what I wore before. And I tweeted a picture and was like, tell me the truth, Twitter. Can I pull these off? Um, You can wear them around the house and have your spouse or your partner or your roommate, you know, look at. You for a while and tell you if you look like yourself in these different frames get a feel for them get feedback on them you can keep them for five days you mail them back to warby parker in a prepaid package doesn't cost you anything to do this home try on once you know what you like you put in your prescription you can take a picture of your prescription you know that like the piece of paper that has your eyeglass prescription on it and upload it to the warby parker site and they do the rest like it really could not be easier. Uh, and then you get your glasses in like a week. It's great. I've been wearing mine for almost a year now. So $95. They're sturdy. They're I think my glasses are really cute. Um, I get compliments on them. They have tons of styles to choose from. And if things with literary names ring your bells, then you'll be delighted to know that the name of Warby Parker has literary origins, and many of the glasses' uh, style names also have literary origins. Go to Warby Parker, W-A-R-B-Y Parker slash book riot to choose your five free home try on frames, send the frames back, choose your favorite pair and ordering and order them up. When you visit Warby Parker slash book riot, you're going to get free three day shipping on your final glasses. They're going to make sure that your experience is completely risk free and you'll have free shipping all the way around. Also. For every pair of glasses they sell, they distribute a pair of glasses to someone in need. Excellent. That is excellent. Red. So... Go to warbyparker.com slash bookriot today. Start trying on. Oh, you can also upload a picture of your face and then digitally try on glasses. If nothing else, that's really fun to do. Um, So get started on finding your new look. Enjoy the home try on program. Get yourself some new specs. Uh, Warbyparker.com slash bookriot. Thank you so much to them for sponsoring the show. And hey, if you get glasses from them, send us a picture on Twitter so we can tell you how good you look. All right. New books. New books. This was a, like a big week for new books. Liberty and I got really tongue-tied on the All the Books show this week, talking about all of them. I'm going to start with the one that I think is the most interesting, one of the most interesting books of, like of the year, because of who wrote it, Mycroft Holmes by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Here for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one and only Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, former NBA player, very smart guy has written a book about Mycroft Holmes. It turns out that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a huge Sherlock Holmes nerd. Uh, I love it when somebody who's known for one thing turns out to be a super nerd about something else. I think that's so much fun. Uh, if you are a Sherlock reader, you know that Mycroft Holmes is Sherlock's older brother. And this is a story that imagines an earlier part of Mycroft Holmes' life. Get your Sherlock nerdness on. Just get down with it. I
0: think that please don't come for me, Internet. But I think that Mycroft is such a more interesting character than Sherlock,
1: if mm. I'm allowed
0: to say that. So I'm really happy that Conan Debar picked him to write what is essentially Sherlock Holmes fan fiction. Yeah, it is. About because um, he's just he's just more interesting. I don't know. Sherlock Holmes gets away with a lot of stuff because he's kind of a sociopath, which mm-hmm. means that he's whatever like you can attribute all of his weird quirkiness to that but mycroft holmes has is like has an equally he's equally as intelligent but um he's not sociopathic he's just a really cold jerk and so it's like there's not this level of you can explain away all of his weird stuff because he's got uh, you know sociopathy or whatever anyway i think he's just he's more complicated i am a Mycroft fan.
1: So you're going to read this?
0: 100%. Yes. Yes, I am. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote a Mycroft Holmes book. I'm going to read it. We are here for you. I'm totally going to read it. I agree with you. I I get a big kick out of somebody who's famous for one thing, turning out to be totally geeky about something. Um, I love that because people are complicated and have diverse interests. So, yeah, I'm going
1: to read it. Yeah. Yeah, And people just geeking out about whatever they're super into, I think is such a beautiful, fun thing to watch. Uh, I hope – I'm just going to decide to believe, actually, that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has, like, computers filled with the fan fiction about Mycroft Holmes that he wrote before he got this book deal. Like, I need to believe that he's been writing Mycroft Holmes fanfic on the dark net or whatever for decades. (laughs) The dark net.
0: I think that's where people go to, like, sell organs.
1: (laughs) I'm watching a lot of Orphan Black right now. People are talking about the dark net and whatever. I don't know how you get to it, but it's there, apparently. Maybe Kareem Abdul-Jabbar knows. Sure. Uh, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> My, I think, biggest, most anticipated young adult title of the year, I Crawl Through It by A.S. King. I love her. Uh, She writes really gritty, always kind of surreal young adult fiction that's about the very real issues that teenagers face. Um, This is a story about teenagers at a suburban high school that gets bomb threats every day. Um, The main character is recovering from some sort of trauma in her family. We don't know really what it was, but it was not good. Her parents take her to sites of school shootings like on vacation. That's a thing that they do as tourism. Stuff's going on with her family. (laughs) She has a friend, her best guy friend uh, is building an invisible helicopter. She can only see it on Tuesdays. Other people can see it on different days of the week. Uh, They have a friend who has swallowed herself and is a walking digestive tract. It sounds weird, but in the book, it's totally believable. And another girl uh, who lies, and every time that she lies, her hair grows like Pinocchio. And all of these kids have these conditions that they talk about For reasons of things that they've experienced. And all of this stuff sort of comes to stand in for like these, these come to be like physical manifestations of the emotional and psychological and sexual traumas that these kids have experienced. Um, it's so, I don't know if I was texting you or uh, or Jen about it. When I was reading it, I was like, I'm 100 pages into the new A.S. King book. One of the girls is a walking digestive tract. It's so good. I don't even know what's real anymore. <laughs> no, um, I would remember that text. You
0: must have said yeah.
1: it. <laughs> it's really difficult to describe this book and to describe what happens in it. And So I do think that you should just go read it. It's very smart. It's different from any YA I've ever read. Um, and A.S. King just consistently with her work reminds me that these issues that face young adults are really difficult um, and that we can write really interesting and smart fiction about them. That's not like hyper articulate Dawson's Creek teenagers, um, but there, that there are really creative thoughtful ways to explore and tell stories that kids and Adults who remember what it's like to be kids can relate to that aren't just a straight up like here is a hard thing about being a teenager. Let's talk about it. Uh, it's really, really excellent if you're if you can hang with the weird. It, it it's never explained in the book, so you have to be willing to hang with the weird. It is totally, totally worth it. I crawl through it by As King, um, out in paperback. Honeydew by Edith Perlman. It's a collection of short stories that was just nominated for the National Book Award. It's on the long list. I had never read Edith Perlman before. I am so sorry that I took forever these are excellent um i said on all the books that she's like an american alice monroe i stand by that quiet stories about domestic and social life in small towns i think that you would like these i believe Uh, you and yeah Uh, and how we got to now by stephen johnson is also out in paperback if you are in the uh, me and jeff club of thinking about innovation and creativity and the history of uh creative work. This is right up your alley. Um, it's uh, it's like six micro histories in one about inventions that built modern society and how we got to those things like um, refrigeration, essentially how we figured out that we could preserve ice long enough to move it from place to place so that the modern um, meat industry could become what it was, so that air conditioning could become what it was. They talk about eyeglasses, so how Warby Parker got to be here. And apparently, thanks to a reader who told me online this week, Uh, It was also turned into a PBS miniseries. So you can get your nerd on in multiple formats of how we got to now. Those are my picks this week. That's our show. Thanks for hanging with me. No problem. It's nice to have a girl party. (laughs) You can, as always, get these show notes and all the links that we talked about at bookriot.com slash podcast. Send us an email at podcast at bookriot.com. I am on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Miss Amanda is I'm Amanda Nelson, no apostrophe because Twitter don't like that. Come hang out with us at Book Riot Live. Go to bookriotlive.com and use the code WHEELHOUSE to save $20 on your registration. What else? If you like the show, you can rate or review it on iTunes. It lets us know how we're doing, and it also helps other people uh, to discover it. You can hear Amanda every other week on the Get Booked podcast, where she takes custom book recommendation requests, like I've got to buy a book for my grandma who loves murder she wrote and i don't know what to read amanda will recommend you oh i have so many recommendations for that one <laughs> right up that <laughs> i'm every week on the all the books podcast with liberty hardy where we go deep into eight of the week's best new releases so if this new book segment at the end is the thing you like you can hear me there I think that's it. I feel like we missed something. Thank you to our sponsors, Warby Parker and Scribd. And don't forget to pick up Entry Island by Peter May if you're in the mood for a mystery this season. We will talk to you next week. Bye.